Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome, everyone, to Kids A to Z with Dr. T. I am your host, Teresa Signorelli, and we are bringing you information about the five areas of child development so parents can empower their children to thrive. So today in the Brains in Toyland segment, we have um, um, a music mentor named um, Ekanem Abina, and she is going to talk to us about how we can empower our children in terms of their musical abilities. She is a GIML certified music development specialist, and um, we have entitled the segment Mentoring Mini Musicians and Building Music Skills in Early Childhood, because that's what she's going to talk about. So, Ekanem, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> You're very welcome. Can you um, start off by telling us a little bit about who you are and maybe give us an overview of what you do? Yes, um, I am a musician, a singer, and I've been singing and playing instruments since I was a little girl. In fact, some of my first memories involve singing with people um, as a girl in, in my church. And uh, I also have very early memories of playing my violin um, in solos and in ensembles as a little girl. And um, being a musician and also being a sort of introspective person, um, I think is a lot of who I am now as a music mentor. I went through a stage when I was a music teacher where I had just students and myself, but now I am a music mentor where I kind of create a triangle between myself and caregivers and children um, so that I'm helping more children but also helping adults to feel themselves in um, kind of a musical relationship with kids instead of um, my being the boss and the one who owns music. <laughs> so that's, okay. that's who I feel that I am now, and, and that's kind of where I'm coming from. And and you you brand yourself as a music mentor, and and as typically or different as a typical music teacher. And is is that basically um, what the difference is? Is you're building more of a relationship and bringing a social emotional component, or making it more of a team effort, or how is that? Yes, I would. Yeah, I would say all of those things. I would say that I'm extending it beyond um, the the time in the classroom um, and also beyond sort of the I'm giving you this information and you're replicating it, student, um, to um, how are you remembering this music and how are you um, using this music during the day, during the week, when you're not in the classroom, when you're together as a family, and um, how is this music kind of evolving and cropping up in other things, like when you're humming to yourself during the day or when you pick up your instrument and you noodle around, um, so that the relationship that I have now as a mentor is a relationship that um, kind of frees the people I'm mentoring to have music all the time, not just with me and um, not just as something that's very um, rote. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Yeah, you're so right about why don't? That. All right. So as as we start to talk about 
music development, maybe we should give the audience an overview of really what music is and perhaps tell us about the different components, which I think would be important for parents to know so they know what areas of music can be fostered in their children. Yeah, um, that's a that's an awesome question. Um, it's a big question too, and I I'm going to answer it in my own limited way <laughs> um, because um, I think of music as um, I think of it a lot of different ways. I think of it as communication. So I think of it as a way um, to use our bodies and our minds to communicate our state of being, like our emotions, our feelings, um, how, how our bodies are to each other. Um, I think of it as a way of thinking, so it can be a way of communicating to oneself, um, imagining vibrations and imagining sounds and soundscapes. And um, it has lots of different um, components. Um, And again, I'm not the biggest philosopher, but some of the basics are things like um, rhythm, so the way time is broken up in repeated patterns, and um, melody, the way um, we hear tones, um, either by themselves or in harmony on top of each other, and form, so the way that we hear repeated patterns of melodies um, in in bigger pieces of music, um, whether they've been written down or whether they just occur to us or whether they're um, part of our family or religious or cultural tradition. Um, And... So when I think of music, I think of things like um, style. So I think of um, maybe a dapper person or maybe a sexy person or maybe um, a lugubrious person or um, a chipper person. So I think of those kinds of styles. But then I also think of culture. So I might think of a kind of Latin music or African music or Asian or uh, Western European music. And um, and I also think about um, kind of... Uh, uh, a setting. So I think of music as something that um, marks um, the place where you are and the ritual that you're doing with the people there, whether it's a ritual as simple as getting in and out of the car or going to bed, or it's a ritual like getting married or attending a mass or attending a funeral. Um, so um, those are all the ways that I think of music and, and what's inside music, what it's made of and what it's made for. <laughs> Okay, so so tones and rhythms, melodies and styles are all areas of music where um, parents can work with their children and music mentors like yourself, um, areas that they can develop. Um, and, and especially yeah. I would think that cultural, the cultural appreciation and cultural differences, which could be so nice. Um, mm-hmm. Can you mention a little bit maybe what music theory is or music learning theory, those maybe terms parents have heard, just briefly what those could be? Um, and 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 what they might um, need to do to enhance that in children. Yeah, um, I think um, music theory is um, the study of of music. It's the study of the structures in music, um, like the melody and rhythm, and harmony and form that I was talking about before. Um, it's the study of of scales, tonal systems, tuning. Um, it um, it's the study of how those things work together. It's the math behind it. It's um, all kinds of theories behind it. And um, it's something that um, that can be understood academically, like with um, written, written information and talking. Um, 
And then the things that music theory addresses, um, sort of the deep things music theory addresses, are are things that we also can understand intuitively and implicitly, um, just in the ways that our bodies move, our hearts beat, um, you know, the the melody in our singing and in our speaking even, and even the rhythm of our conversation going back and forth between each other. Um, And so... Music theory is one thing, um, but then music learning is another thing. The way that the way that we learn is more than just with words or or talking or writing things down. It's with actually breathing and moving and living and communicating with each other. And so, um, music learning theory is something different from music theory because music learning theory talks about how we get all these um, things that music theory describes into our bodies and into our minds. Um, and it also describes kind of um, the progression of learning, of, of uh, what people learn first, what's easy and what's hard. And um, music learning theory, the, uh, Gordon music learning theory was actually um, thought of by a man named Edwin Gordon. And he studied um, in psychological labs, he studied um, again, how people learn patterns, um, what patterns are hard for them, which ones are easy. Um, and he also figured out that very young children have um, a five-year span of learning that's distinct from adult or older older childhood learning, and he called that preparatory audiation. Um, and that, that buzzword, preparatory audiation, is kind of cool because it kind of signals parents to realize that the things that their children are doing are, are building up to their children's whole life as a, as a musicer, as a person who thinks of music and makes music. Um, and so music learning theory tries to describe that sequence, especially the preparatory audiation sequence, and then it tries to figure out what helps people get through that sequence and grow strong in that sequence. And um, the the biggest thing that I've noticed working with kids and also studying music learning theory with, with different teachers um, is that the biggest thing that helps with um, audiation and with preparatory audiation is um, is conscious breathing, is, is, is breathing consciously. Um, in preparatory audiation, it helps if the caregiver is breathing consciously for himself as a model for the young child, just like in every other kind of early childhood learning. And then in audiation, which is what older children and adults do, um, obviously that kind of breathing is coordinated with um, moving an instrument, with moving one's voice, with singing in tune and moving to a beat. Um, so so that, um, again, when I talk about music learning theory, it's a way of thinking about how people really learn when they learn music and thinking about um, what we can do as parents for young children as something that involves our own musicking. So it doesn't involve writing things down or showing flashcards. It doesn't involve putting instruments in young children's hands or sitting them in front of a uh, a blackboard with a notation staff on it. It really involves um, making music with our bodies, consciously making music with our bodies in a communicative um kind of loving, relational way with children. Okay, so um, we had talked, we had asked about music theory and um, and music learning theory, and it sounds like um, the music learning theory 
talks or gives us information about how developmentally or incrementally we can do things with children so they can build on skills so they can do those more complex music theory types of activities. So mm-hmm. maybe we can talk a little bit about how how music ability develops and perhaps you had mentioned the conscious breathing maybe give examples of what that looks like and what you would tell a child and give us maybe mm-hmm. some more information about um, what you mean by preparatory audiation. So mm-hmm. I guess in a nutshell, tell us about how music ability develops. Um, okay. Well, um, it develops, um, as you said, in, in, a, in, a, in a sequence, and uh, the sequence builds on itself from birth um, through age five, at least for the preparatory audiation phase. Um, and um, that phase has um, three types. Um, starting from birth, the first type is called acculturation, and um, that's a kind of interaction with music where um, babies don't really um, consciously try to learn the music. They're really just collecting um, music from the environment, so from what they're hearing from other people, and um, their responses are pretty random. So they squeak and they grunt and they burble and they kick and um, they hop or whatever, and um, they're not consciously making an effort to engage with the music. Um, and an example of that is something that happened with me, happens with me when I'm in um, like a baby, a, a newborn to six-month-old classroom, which I had the privilege of doing for a few years at an early childhood center where um, I would um, sit on the mat with the baby. Some of them were, were laid down on their stomachs. Some of them were, you know, some of them could sit, but most of them were laid down on their stomachs on, on their little blankets. <laughs> and um, I would begin to sing and, and do my gentle movements and, you know, smile at them and show that I was singing for them. And I would stop singing and they would, their eyes would, you know, kind of brighten up and they would make little noises that in many cases were in the same key as the song that I was singing. And um, even if the noise is an like that, it's an that is in, again, the key that I'm singing. And so uh, these teeny tiny people, again, they're not consciously doing it. They're unconsciously tuning in um, as they're collecting this musical information for themselves. Almost. Um, Almost reflexively, it sounds. Yeah, like it's a reflex to respond. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think it is reflexive for them to respond in that way. Um, And sometimes, even even though um, even though emotional, well, what what I should say is sometimes the response all the time the response is is kind of a holistic response and sometimes i'd be in one of those classrooms and the baby is you know maybe he's having a bowel movement or maybe he is startled by seeing a new person or maybe you know it's too cold in the room and when i'm singing or when i stop singing he'll start making what sounds like a cry like eh, like that so he may be having some kind of distress but the cry itself is still in tune with what I was singing. <laughs> so oh, that's fascinating. Again, yeah, it is fascinating. And like you said, I really like what you said about it being reflexive. It's not. It's not reflective. It's reflexive. <laughs> and um, so that's kind of that first of the three um, types of preparatory ideation is that sort of unconscious, almost reflexive 
time um, when the baby is just collecting information. And um, I should say that the preparatory ideation phases are, are similar to um, verbal development, which you know more about than I do as a speech um, therapist. But the children are... Um, they're they're hearing things and the things are going into their minds, but they're not able to reproduce them for us, and they're not they're not really reflecting on them in an adult way. And um, if you starve them of the opportunity to collect that information when they're at that age, they never have the same capacity to collect all that information. <laughs> so the cool thing you can do for a baby of that age is to sing all day and to present live music all day and to present lots of different kinds of live music um, so that your baby has a lot of information that he's collecting during that first yeah, type so of acculturation. It, yeah, it, so it sounds like there's a sensitive or critical period in which children need that exposure to music so they can develop skills down the road. So that preparatory audiation, they're really preparing themselves to take in um, auditory information or, you know, information they'll be getting through their ears. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the other types of, um, of preparation uh, that you talked about? Yeah. Um, the second type um, is called imitation, and that's a phase um, when children are much more conscious uh, about what's happening musically around them. And it's a time when they start to make an effort to to engage with the musical sounds, and they start to try to copy them. And and what you'll hear is that they're actually getting pieces of it right, like they're actually making um, phrases, musical phrases, rhythmic phrases that sound like what they heard. Um, they'll have a simil- similar tonal contour, and they'll have a somewhat similar um, rhythm. <laughs> um, and and the, the kids are actually making the effort to make that happen. And during the imitation phase, and mm-hmm. the effort isn't accurate, uh, very accurate. <laughs> um, and so during that phase, what's really important is encouraging, welcoming, and inviting that effort, um, kind of like in a conversation with the child. If the child decides to try to copy what you've done musically, obviously you you are delighted, and you echo back what the child said and then or sang and then you sing what you originally sang. And during that time the child is reflective and he uses what you've done in that little interaction to make comparisons in his mind between what he did and what you did. <laughs> and yep. um it's a really it's a really fun um, thing to see happen, to see a child, for example, I've had the opportunity to work with a child who was 18 months all the way till he was three years old, and to see him transition from type 1 to type 2, and seeing that almost like click in his eye where he his, it's like he was like, I'm going to try to do this, and he tried to do it, and he had some accuracy, and he, he, he it's almost like he felt he was part of something. It's really, really cool. <laughs> it's really fun. Um, and, and sort of just being there with him in that conversation, you know, not just stopping the interaction but but continuing it um, is what a parent can do um, during that type 2 um, imitation uh, phase. Okay. And was there an age range for that type 2? 
there is the age ranges are a little bit rough because even though everybody goes sequentially through the types, not everyone starts the the type at the exact same age. So, um, and not everyone spends the same amount of time in each type. Not every child does. Um, so, um, you can see children finishing all of the types by the time they're age five, but a child may not start type two until he's two, and a child could start type two when he's 18 months old. A child might not start type three until he's four or five, but you can sometimes see a two-year-old or a three-year-old who's starting type three. Um, But no child starts any of the types without having already um, engaged in the previous types, if that that sounds more sequential. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, yeah, so they they need to go through step one before step two or type one before type two. And so what is, you mentioned type three. What is type three? Type three is assimilation, and um, type three is when you start to see all the information the child was collecting, musical information the child was collecting in types one and two, and all of those efforts that he was making to imitate and the comparisons he was making in his mind during um, during type two, you see them become um, a completely like autonomous and owned process where he's not just imitating, he's initiating. And... He's initiating a breath before he begins his musical phrases because he's actually planning how he's going to make his phrases conform to external time, how he's going to make them be in tune with whatever key is going on around him and whatever key he was thinking because at this phase they're uh, they're aware of their musical thoughts. They're aware of the musical image that they have in their mind and they are aware of what they can do to bring it out to the world with their body and their breath in, in an organized way. And so children who are in assimilation, um, you'll see them take a breath and you'll see them um, kind of um, coordinate themselves so that the whole phrase they're thinking of comes out entirely. And then also in in, in assimilation, as it approaches the end and comes towards audiation, What's hap- what happened with me when I you know, worked with children like that, again, in a school where I had had them through many of the phases, and this was a pre-K-5 class, um, those children are able to um, improvise. And when I say improvise, I don't just mean make random noises. I mean that when I presented them with a rhythm pattern, they were able to make a different rhythm pattern that was in the same meter as the rhythm pattern that I gave them and that was also the same length. So, for example, if I gave them a rhythm pattern in 3-4 time, they could give me a different rhythm pattern that was in 3-4 time at the same speed that I gave it to them and for the same two or four measures. Um, And so this is where that kind of creativity joins up with the information they were collecting and with their intention and their now more stable thinking um, so that they're they're audiating and they're um, they've assimilated everything all together okay so you had you had mentioned the three types of preparatory audiation the acculturation the imitation assimilation and then you did mention something bodyation so is that a phase that's out of preparatory and they're um, becoming more advanced? 
Oh, I'm, I probably I heard mis- you right. mispronounced. I, I mispronounced audiation, which after okay. preparatory audiation is is audiation, um, technically. <laughs> okay. And um, and so that that is a, a way of thinking in music. Um, where you can imagine music that you've heard before, and you can even mm-hmm. imagine music you've never heard before, um, even if the music isn't playing, even if there aren't any instruments and no one is making a noise. You can imagine it in your mind, in your musical mind, and you can manipulate it. So, for example, a lot of people um, who maybe have had piano lessons but who haven't had the chance to develop their audiation, they, they know a handful of songs that they learned in their lessons, um, but they couldn't possibly play those songs in another key or in another meter. And they couldn't improvise, for example, um, a new melody line that, that goes over the bass line of that song. Or they couldn't play a new song with very much ease. Or they couldn't play a song that they know how to sing um, and go and sit at their instrument and play it. And that that those are things that someone who's audiating is able to do because that audiation is such a strong and stable um way of thinking in their minds okay so uh, what i'm hearing is that if if a child doesn't go through these three um stages of preparatory audiation what they'll be able to do in the audiation phases um will be limited they won't be able to create um, to be novel and create more rich types of music and improvise, perhaps. I think so. I think it'll be limited, and and to get to where a person wants to get will require more effort. Um, and I mean, I've I've actually read read research that says that their their actual potential to perform will be limited by the richness and variety of their experiences in preparatory audiation. Um, I mean, I don't think most people. I don't think most people get a chance to be guided to their highest potential, no matter what they had in preparatory audiation. I don't think most adults are given the opportunity to maximize what they what they have, um, even as adults. Um, so there might be a temptation to to freak out and say, "Oh, my child's going to be tone deaf if I don't <laughs> if I don't do this." Um, but I don't think people should panic. I think people should just start engaging. I think um, they should realize that there's a, a, a sort of diverse and wondrous world of, of music making available to their child and that they can um, open more of it to their child. So I don't want to be here um, trying to frighten and panic people. Um, I just want to open their eyes to what more there is available out there. If, was that more... Did that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, you had mentioned earlier um, playing piano, and I think of things we can make available to our children would be the ability to play an instrument. And so, again, we're talking about the birth to five-year skill range on the show. So what can you tell parents about when a child maybe should start learning to play an instrument? And perhaps... You know, how do they choose what formal instruments their children should play? How, what, what could you speak to regarding that? Oh yeah, I love that question because it leads. It, it, it's a really good segue from what we were talking about, um, which is that instruments are are tools, and they're kind of extensions of our body, um, and they're tools that we that we uh, that we use to kind of add to our musical expression. 
Um, and so a child who hasn't finished preparatory audiation and who doesn't have um, stable audiation going on inside, who's still doing those other kinds of, of, of musical thinking, giving him a tool to extend what isn't already stable inside is kind of silly. <laughs> it's silly and it's also counterproductive because then his attention becomes focused on handling this tool instead of on handling his inner his inner music. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what some people say is that when you give a child an instrument when he's still in music babble, when he's still in preparatory audiation, you're you're just hamstringing his preparatory audiation and you're sort of cutting short what he can actually use the instrument for because you're not letting him develop the music that he's using the instrument to to express um and so as i said before preparatory audiation for most children ends around age five and audiation should be established by around age five and there's kind of a kind of a um i guess you could say a flexible period between five and nine um for a lot of children, similar to in speech and language and reading. And so I would say that, you know, until a child is audiating, it's it's not really that helpful for the child to be using an instrument. Um, mm-hmm. It's best for the child to be using his physical instrument, his voice, um, and his body. And it's also um, not a detriment to the child. The child isn't losing out because they found that children who start taking instrument lessons before they're nine years old compared to children who start when they're nine, the children who start when they're nine um, catch up in their skills, their instrument skills, in a matter of months <laughs> to the children who've been grinding along with technical um, music, um, technical instrumental um, skills between um, before age nine. So it's not really, you're not, missing out with your child if the child doesn't start playing uh, an instrument before he's nine years old. And if the child does start before his f- he's five, you might actually be harming his musicality. And um, so I would say, so, you know, wait till the child... Go ahead. So I was going to ask is... Well, I think you were saying wait till the child's about nine. Well, wait wait till the child is, is demonstrating, like I said, that in, in that that accuracy, that absolute accuracy in um in imitating musical phrases and rhythmic phrases. He's demonstrating that internal um consciousness and purposeful taking of a breath before he initiates music. Um he's showing a, a kind of not criticalness but engagement in music that's thoughtful. Um and that's that's gonna be Age five at the earliest. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. So my question then is, um, music therapists and preschool teachers and speech pathologists even will incorporate music a lot of the time in what we're doing with children, um, even younger than five. Um, and we're using, I guess, technically instruments, but a lot of times they're just cymbals or sticks that they're 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 whacking around. I don't think you mean those types of instruments when you talk about waiting. That's not a real formal thing. No, I, I, what I'm no, I'm I'm talking about formal training where someone is learning technique, is learning how to finger different uh, notes, is learning how to hold the instrument, is learning how to produce a reliable tone on the instrument, um, is memorizing repertoire that he's producing on the instrument exactly those kinds of things. I don't mean 
exploring sounds and exploring materials. In fact, I think it's very useful for children's ears for them to explore the different sounds that different kinds of materials make when they interact with them. I think I think that's uh I think that's part of collecting musical information for kids as long as there aren't expectations that the child is um replicating a piece of music exactly or or responding to you exactly when you ask him to respond because a lot of their musical thinking is very internal and we shouldn't be asking them to demonstrate it on an instrument. So no, I what you're saying about symbols and and things like that having those things around for kids to play with that's not what I meant by 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 what I was saying. <laughs> All right, great. No, that's perfect. That's a great. I think that that makes it very clear. That makes it really clear. Um, we did mention music theory a little bit earlier, um, and, and I want to go back to that and maybe talk about what would be appropriate or helpful for children regarding um, maybe learning music theory at different ages when, when they are young. What what, what could mm-hmm. we do early to help build that later? That's an awesome, awesome question. Um, so one thing that I do with my students and that a lot of teachers do with their students is when they're under five, is when we're presenting a song, so when we're singing a song with the children or when we're rapping a rap with the children, but I'll start with the song. To help the children understand tonality, um, when we're singing the song, we make sure that we emphasize the resting tone of the song, and that's the note of the song that is the beginning of the scale, where everything seems to try to settle in the song. And so that we can do that by having another teacher um, sing the resting tone periodically through the song. We can do that by having, you know, a xylophone where we've only put um, the bars that that reflect the resting tone on it, um, or by putting um, individual bars that the children can play with, which I'm sure you've seen in in, in music therapy classrooms where the child has a mallet and a single bar. Um, so having that resting tone available for the child to interact with himself and also to hear from an adult or a knowledgeable musicer while the song is being sung helps the child understand um, tonality, helps him understand the key better because he knows where it's resting. He can refer back to that note often. You're giving him a, a, a place of reference during the song. So, so by resting without tone, using... You, mm-hmm. So can you explain maybe um, yes, a little bit more what tone. resting tone is? Yes, the resting tone again is if you're if you're talking about like if people have have played instruments or they read music, the resting tone is um the tonic of the key. So if you're in the key of G major, the resting tone is G. Mm-hmm. Um if you're in the key of G minor, the resting tone is also G. So mm-hmm. it's it's the place where in the music you feel like when the song ends that's the that's the, the note that you want to hear that's the center of the music um and that's the beginning of the scale if you're if you have written notation and you're writing out the scale that's the beginning of the scale so it'll be that um, first sound that they're hearing Essentially, it could. It's often when people write, they often use it as the first sound, sound, and they often use it as the last sound, um, and and kind of repeating it for the children throughout the song helps them understand understand um, the meaning of it and how the rest of the sounds in the scale um, or the key are organized around it, and um, so. 
Similarly, with rhythm, when you're presenting a chant or a rhythmic poem or, or nursery rhyme, um, making sure that you're staying steady, that you're steady on your beat while you're presenting it, that's another way that you can help the children orient themselves in um, in the meter that you're presenting. Okay. So without using you. the words, yeah. So without using the words, oh, this is the meter, or this is the key we're in, or this is the tonality we're in you are giving the children an internal understanding of what those things are um, so that when you get to age five or audiation, you can begin to put words, uh, to put verbal association on top of those things. And adding those words to it won't be giving them random information. It'll be giving them information that connects to something they internally already understand. Doing it before that, like giving them written notation and telling them note names and stuff like that before that is really a bunch of uh, sort of useless information, useless and distracting information. Um, yeah. I don't know if that was <laughs> – yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, and so I'm I'm seeing the, the magic of nursery rhymes um, and being able to help children with their music skills um, later on in life. Definitely. Definitely, especially if they're done expressively, especially if they're done in a rhythmic way. Um, and, uh, yeah, definitely. And I, I thought of something else um, about, um, I guess, just doing the music with the children. A lot of this has to do with how the parent or the caregiver is doing the music. So that's one thing about myself calling myself a mentor is that I encourage parents to be making music every day by themselves and with their child so that when they're doing these presentations, they have something stable and reliable for the child um, because they are themselves musicking regularly. <laughs> and, and, and not to just leave it up to a teacher or to some stranger, but to really take that take that in for themselves. Um, and I also wanted and, to say... Um, Go ahead. Uh-huh. I was gonna. I was gonna say, and by musicking, you mean making music of some sort. Yeah, definitely. And I was also gonna say, uh, bef- what I was saying before about you know trying to use music theory terms with children who aren't audiating yet. I think it would be similar to you know telling a pre-kindergartner um, to diagram a sentence or these are the parts of speech. Now categorize these words by the parts of speech, which I think is not really a, a, te- a technique that people use with very young children in in learning to read and learning speech. I think people more read them stories or, you know, repeat words to them or, or tell them individual words or explain words to them or correct their pronunciation. They don't try to get them to think theoretically about speech when they're very young children. I don't know if you've exactly. had the same experience. Um, Yes, right. We're not asking them to tell us which one is the noun and the verb and the adjective, Uh, right? We're just telling them what things are called and asking them questions and helping them respond, exactly. Uh, We do have a tendency, I find, in the United States to use, I think, hyper-academic concepts with young children, giving them letters and numbers. A lot of um, toys have that. and I like to move away from that for that exact purpose, that it's not relevant to them yet. Um, don't show them an A, give them an apple. Don't show them a B, give them a ball and, and talk about it and say it and use it functionally, use it functionally. And I see, I see lots of parallels between music development and speech and language development and much of speech 
and language is oral and auditory and so like music. So um, that's not so surprising. But let's let's move on a little. Um, what I find parents often enjoy is hearing about experiences of other families. And so is there a personal experience that you know about or maybe even experienced yourself that you can talk about um, regard, regarding learning music or developing musical abilities? Um, yeah. Uh, there are so many wonderful, <laughs> wonderful stories that have happened over the years. And um, I can think of one girl I worked with she was five years old when I started working with her, and so she was sort of on that, that borderline where you're like, is she in preparatory ideation? Is she audiating? And so I did some exercises with her um, that were play-based. Um, so one thing I haven't really talked about a lot is that the way I present these songs for the children to learn is is, is movement and play-based so that um, I'm never talking about it. I'm always singing. I'm always um, speaking the chant either with words or without words, and I'm always moving. I'm constantly breathing and moving smoothly while I'm doing it so that it looks kind of like, you know, having a play on the floor. It looks like floor time um, when I'm doing these lessons, and it doesn't look like, okay, now we're going to sit in rows or now we're going to sit in a circle <laughs> um, because that's when we find that children are able to make their most spontaneous responses to the music and then we're able to respond to those responses um, right in the moment when the child is um, is is ready to ready to engage um, and so with this girl who was five I was doing some of those sort of floor play kinds of things and her mother had wanted um, the girl to learn recorder actually the girl um, was uh, being homeschooled in the Waldorf approach, and um, that tradition likes the recorder a lot to introduce children to music. Um, and so her mom had asked me to do recorder with her. And so with this girl, I was finding, wow, this floor play is going really well. She's giving me really, really, she's obviously engaging in, in, in imitation. Not only that, but she's giving me very accurate responses. She's initiating novel responses. She's um, She's um, improvising. So um, after she and I learning a few songs with that method, then um, I taught her a couple, a few fingerings on the recorder and, and did use the verbal association. You know, this is an A, this is a G, this is a B flat. And within a few weeks of teaching her the fingerings on the recorder, all the songs that we had been singing together she was able to play on the recorder without notation. And not only that, but when I would ask her to transpose them into a different key, she would do it instantaneously. I would say, okay, well, now now Do is G. Remember the fingering for G? And she would say yes. And then she would play the song that she had just played, for example, in A. She would play it in G immediately without any kind of grunting or groaning or fear or anything. Um Seeing her do that for me was kind of like taking the knowledge I'd learned in class from the page to real life and seeing, wow, this can really be effortless. This kind of mm -hmm. music making and music thinking can really be effortless and fun for the children when it's approached at this slow pace. Um, and then um, she went on, her name was Sophia, she went on to um, begin to not just improvise songs singing, but to improvise them on her recorder. 
Um, so, you know, we would sing a song together, and then I'd be like, well, do you want to make a new verse for that on your recorder? And she'd pick up the recorder, and she'd be right in the right key, right in the right meter, and make up a totally new melody um, that if she'd played it with us while we were singing, it would have sounded like they were two parts of the same song. Um, and this is at age five. <laughs> yeah, that's um, really nice. Can you maybe was, give a story? Oh. Yeah, Go ahead. <laughs> it is. I'm sure that it is a beautiful thing to see when when they're really able to create and generate on their own, I'm sure rewarding for you as their mentor and I'm sure their parents. <laughs> um, yeah. Can you, give a little, <laughs> can you give a little snippet of maybe a child who was younger, of something you've done with them and you've seen? Yes. Um, there have been so many children, kind of like the boy that I mentioned before, who I saw him kind of go from – type 1 and type 2 of preparatory ideation where before he'd just been sort of wandering around the room during the classes, which I totally accept and expect, and that's an expectation that I try to communicate to parents that very young children are not going to to behave like kindergartners, middle schoolers, or adults. Um, They are going to behave like young children, and while they're doing that, they're still learning. So, you know, for the first... um, you know, year or so of being with me. He'd been, you know, kind of toddling around the room while I was singing, occasionally making a peep or making a laugh or, you know, a little fragment of something would come out of him after I was, you know, when I was giving my quiet moments for reflection. And like I was saying before, there was there was one day when his mom, he, his mom, and I were sitting in a circle, in a group, I should say, on the floor, and I finished one of these songs, which his mom was singing with me, and I I sang a little a little um, tonal pattern that's kind of meant to encourage the children to copy and engage a little bit. And then his mom sang the pattern, and that's again the mentorship relationship. His mom sang the pattern, and she, you know she's looking in his eyes. She's looking at his face rather, because he's not looking at her eyes at this point. And he turned his head and his eyes up to her eyes and looked straight into her eyes and copied it exactly back to her, exactly in tune. And uh, she was, of course, delighted because <laughs> he'd never done that before. <laughs> and I was delighted because I had never seen him doing it and I'd never seen a child cross the boundary like that, like definitely. Like, up, oh, he's gone, street. now he's an imitation. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was that yeah. was super super cool. That was very exciting. <laughs> it's always exciting to see something go from the textbook to real life. <laughs> yes, and and to see people make that change to, and really see that moment, the moment that it happens, is, can be very exciting. Um, and you yes. made a good point, or that I want to point out is a good point, and how younger children don't learn like older children, and they're will be less structure when you're working with a younger child. And it might not look like they're learning or that teaching and learning is occurring, but it is. And that even though it is kind of free form, that professional, either the music mentor, the speech pathologist, the play therapist, what have you, the teacher, um, that there's thought in behind the scenes and maybe some of the materials they've selected and how they guide the child um, but it does look different, and it does look like there isn't much form or structure or purpose, but there really is. Yes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and kind of 
Sometimes it takes a matter of trust for, you know, for some people to believe that there's structure there. But, you know, when the trust isn't there, then I just refer them to further reading, like a, a link that I think I shared with you um, from the Gordon Institute for Music Learning, um, Gimmel.org, um, that kind of describes it step by step. So they can say, is they can see, oh, this is what's happening behind the scenes. It's not something that can be demonstrated like, you know, Charlie Chaplin on a film, like here he is with his cane and his hat and now he's dancing. Like it's not it's not going to look exactly like that, but this is what's really happening. And when people who maybe don't trust the teacher as much get a chance to read that information, then they become more aware of the signs that it's happening. Um, and they're much more subtle signs, but they can become aware of those signs and then feel more confident that there is progress and that there is learning happening. Yeah, so that that's a good um, resource, I think, and I will put that on our websites, on the Blog Talk Radio site and on kidsatoz.com. You'd mentioned gimmel.org, G-I-M-L.org. I'll put those up, and that leads us in actually to to talking perhaps about your website. You really have a wonderful website and music program for children called Mother in Tune. So why don't you talk to us about the services that you provide for families? Yes, thank you for your compliments. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The services I provide are um, videos that um, kind of allow me to be that third person in the relationship without having to physically be in the room with parents. Um, so that I'm presenting the music which has been selected for its its um, instructiveness for young children. Um, and I'm presenting it on a video so that parents can see how I move with it, so that the parents can copy it much like they would copy a yoga video or a Pilates video. And then I'm encouraging parents with the written materials to allow that third space that that silent space where they are interacting with their child by listening to their child and giving their child time to respond um, so that the mentorship becomes something that um, the parents can use to help themselves do the music even though I'm not there with them. So I have um, a video course Right now, it's actually a gift that I'm wanting to give to your listeners called Musical Mother Tongue that kind of shows parents how to engage in that process. And where I've I've already done the songs for them, I'm, I'm singing the songs for them, I'm chanting the chants for them, I'm moving along to them, and and the parents can just have that on and use that for themselves, either by themselves or with the the children. And so that's at motherintune.com. That's my website, um, and that's where people can can go to find that. And, in fact, um, there's a special link that people can use that's on your Blog Talk site if they want a chance to get, um, to get that tutorial as a free gift. Right. That's the link that I have up there now. It's on the Blog Talk radio station site for our show, and it's on the kidsatoz.com as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really super. Um, and so is that similar to the online programs that you run? Maybe you can talk about what you have um, in that regard, because I know you've done, you've worked with a lot of um, families who homeschool school their children, and um, so you have, as I understand it, a fairly robust online program. Well, yes, that, those videos are online. That's how they're presented online okay. in, in the in the sort of uh, online course format where there are videos and also um, slideshows and also sort of mini lectures 
um, with my voice available. Um, so those are pre-recorded, and then there's also an option to work with me directly um, on live video, um, where the parent and child are visible to me and I'm visible to them, and that's a sort of a private instruction option that I like to introduce to people after they've tried the the pre-recorded video, so that I know that they're already engaged in the process and they kind of know how things are going and and they know what to expect. <laughs> if that makes right. sense, it's sort of a sort of a, a, a process that I want parents to go through so that I know that when they're when they're ready for the private lessons, we're really going to fly together. It's really going to be beneficial to to everyone. Right. And do you do um, private lessons um, or even group lessons in person? I do, and I don't do those as often as I used to now. Um, so I do those um, through our public library system in my town, and I also travel to different cities um, to do them in workshops with teachers, so with people who work mm-hmm. in early childhood centers. Um, I work with them, and sometimes they'll bring children in to be in the workshops with them, and sometimes it'll just be the parents or the teachers. Um and so those are the places where I get to be live in person with kids and having the fun, all the music fun. <laughs> okay, very good. So what would you suggest to families who um, wanted to seek the services of a music teacher or a music mentor such as yourself? Maybe um, talk to them about referral sources and maybe what types of licensing or credentialing um, an individual should have? Like, what, what can parents look for? And that might vary from state to state and um, p- perhaps even country to country because, I mean, we are on the Internet. But what can you tell parents to look out for in that regard? Um, well, I can tell them to look for um, somebody who comes recommended so other parents have enjoyed working with them. I would also tell them, you know, on the one hand, yes, other parents may have enjoyed them, but remember that it's a relationship and not everybody is compatible with everybody else. And to feel free that if you don't have the greatest compatibility with this teacher, to find a different teacher, someone that you like and enjoy and that your child likes and enjoys because um, that that part of it, that emotional part of it, is it. Um, there's no separating the the emotions and the relationship from the learning and from the music making. Um, And so you should definitely look for recommendations from other parents and and also take take counsel with yourself (laughs) as far as how your child is reacting and how and how you're feeling being with the teacher. Um, There's a wonderful website called the Alliance for Music Making um, where they basically collect all of the different kinds of early childhood music teaching in one place. So there's ORF and there's Kodai and there's Suzuki and there's Dalcros. There's all these wonderful approaches um, to teaching music for young children. And you can go to that website and see which one kind of resonates with you, which one you kind of like. And then there is also um, there's also um, music learning theory, <laughs> which is obviously my favorite and the, and the one that I resonate with myself the most. Um, and so, so when you go to a site like that and tool around, go ahead. Mm-hmm. And so the site is Alliance for Music Making. I just wanted to get that out. Um, so is it allianceformusicmaking.org or something of that nature if parents Googled it? I will I will um, double check on that URL so that I can make sure that people um, have it too, to type okay. in exactly. And um, and um, there are large corporations um, that offer um, sort of 
branded or prepackaged um, music instruction. Um, I'm not a huge fan of most of those, but I think where I found the highest quality among those is in um, a corporation called uh, Music Together. So if you Google Music Together in your city name, you might be able to find a studio, a Music Together studio. Um, and uh, I found that the quality, again, of the teachers and the teaching in those studios really takes into account all of the kinds of developmental things that you and I were talking about where they don't focus as much on using the instruments before the kids are ready, and they do focus on um, the children making music instead of just you know someone sitting there playing a guitar and, and being in charge. Um, and so that's one... one um, company that I would recommend that people look for if they have a local studio in that company. Okay. Um, and um, the, and the mm-hmm. URL you were looking for before is Alliance AMM, um, and that's the, that's the um, AllianceAMM.org. Okay. I will um, I will look to get that up on our website as well, so parents can have that um, quick link. Um, yes. All right. Great. Well, thank you. Is there anything else to add? <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to add before we move to the next question? Oh yes. Um, I think it's sort of related, and I feel like I, I'm backtracking. But before you, when you were asking me about instruments, and it's sort of related to how you, you choose the instrument for your child and how you choose a teacher. Um, it's that the choice of the instrument should be according to, to the sounds that the child likes and gravitates towards. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of parents make the mistake of, well, you must play piano or you must play blah, blah, blah. And really um, what they found is that when children choose an instrument whose timbre they prefer, they tend to practice it more and stick with playing it longer and be better mm-hmm. at playing it than if they were if it was chosen for them or if they were forced to do an instrument that they don't gravitate towards naturally. Um, right. So that's another way to choose um, choose how how the kids are going to uh, play their instrument. Yeah, okay. so now we can go oh, to the I, next question. <laughs> well, actually, before we jump to the next question, um, I think I'd asked about licensure or credentialing. Um, is there something students, students, sorry, parents <laughs> should look out for? Well, um, with um, with um, teachers who are um, certified um, Kodai instructors or ORF instructors, you can just look for their levels. So, so they'll usually publicize on their website what level they've achieved in ORF or Kodai or in in um, in Gordon Music Learning Theory or in Dalcros. Um, they'll say that on their website that uh, you know this teacher has level one or level two or level three. So just look that they have levels. Um, mm-hmm. Usually, with a studio like that, that the teacher is is highly trained. What happens when you go for one of the the, the corporations like a, like what I was like a, maybe a jimboree or or a kinder music is that the teachers are not highly trained and they don't have these kinds of um, certifications. Um, they're essentially what I found a lot of parents have said to me when they've come to me from those studios is that they felt like those instructors are glorified babysitters and noisemakers. <laughs> so, um, you know, look for someone who has levels in one of the modalities that's mentioned on the Alliance um, for Active Music Making website um, um, when you're doing the, the early childhood, looking for an early childhood teacher. Okay, great, great. Um, and so 
Um, I do want to ask you about your five fabulous facts for families. That's the way we typically end the show. But before we do that, I realized I forgot to ask you about something that you're surprised that parents often don't know about um, language development. I'm so sorry. Music development. What are parents surprised you find, um, or what are you surprised that parents don't know about music development in children? Um, what am I surprised by? When I, usually I have unpleasant surprises um, <laughs> where I find that um, parents don't don't seem to realize that, um, well, two things. One, they don't seem to realize that children need uh, time to reflect on music before they can respond. Um, so I notice that a lot of parents rush um, rush into the void instead of allowing silence, and they don't realize that that silence is part of music and is part of um, music learning time for children. That's one thing that surprises me every time it happens when it, when the silence is broken by um, by by a parent. Um, and uh, the other thing is something that we've been talking about a lot is that the parents don't realize that their own music making, their own um, way that they sing and way that they breathe and way that they move is teaching their child. Their example is teaching their child. Not a CD, not a book, not um, not a paid teacher, but their example is teaching their child. And I think a lot of parents maybe aren't surprised by that, but just aren't maybe engaged in that idea. They're kind of um, not engaged with that idea. <laughs> Was it, Did that answer your question? Yeah, those were very helpful. Um, and what you said about the silence really resonated with me as a speech pathologist, um, that silence is a part of communication, too, and we need to let children reflect and gather their thoughts. Um, but, yes, I, I part of this, I mean, the main mission of the show is to educate and provide information for parents. And so that's a big question I like to ask of the professionals who come on, is what are they surprised parents often don't know? Because um, I feel there's sometimes some basic information that uh, we're going that's going missing. So, so thank you mm-hmm. for that. Those those are great. That's great information. So then, our final question is: um, we do it's how we end each show is asking the professionals to talk to us about their five fabulous facts for families. What you know the the big important pieces of information um, that you like to share with families. Can you walk us through yours? Um, sure. Um, I kind of feel like I have um, harped on them a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this is just, and this often becomes a summary, which is also helpful too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, one of one of the fabulous facts is that um, your ambition for your child um, is um, is better realized in music when you slow down before age five than when you rush before age five. Um, so that counterintuitively, you know, pushing pushing lots of uh, rehearsal and learning lots of pieces and picking up an instrument and learning all the fingerings before age five, it might seem like you're making things go faster, but you're actually um, slowing them down and inhibiting them. So um, that's one fabulous fact, <laughs> um, you know. And uh, another fabulous fact is that... Um, your relationship with your child is a musical relationship um, and that the ways that you make sounds and move around each other are music. 
that you know music isn't separate from your life music is your life and the more you tune into the way your child is making sounds and moving rhythmically um the more you'll find that music is closer to you and not far away from you um even if you think that you're not a good singer or someone told you that you're not good at music whatever they told you is it's just old news and you can toss it out that's a kind of a fact that i like to share with parents who are more shy about their their own musical abilities um and um number 3 um again i feel like i'm harping on the same points but you said it's fine <laughs> it's fine it's good for it's us redundancy to, um, is good for learning yes uh but number 3 is that um marching and clapping um are two marching and clapping right on the beat um before um before um children are ready isn't really helping them um get on the beat um smooth movements help children get on the beat and organize um time in their minds and in their bodies um more than these hard harsh bang 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 movements um so like the the marching or the clapping those kinds of things and i think a lot of people think that let's clap now clap 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 they think that that's teaching <laughs> young children music but it's in fact not really helping um and to uh, continue to number four, I would say that um, for parents um, who feel uncomfortable about singing, and I don't know if this is going to start ranging over into maybe an exercise or an activity, that the the most important thing to do is is the thing that's the big buzzword in general now, which is mindfulness of your breathing. Um, just getting calm and getting relaxed and being mindful of your breathing before you sing. Um, and taking a, a, a breath every time you're preparing to sing a phrase or uh, or say a rhythmic poem or nursery rhyme so that that awareness of yourself um, um, is also an awareness of the musical aspects of what you're what you're presenting and it helps your child it gives your child a model of of being aware too if he notices oh every time she gets ready to sing something she says like that so without telling the child now you breathe you're actually teaching him by doing it yourself you're preserving your voice so that your voice doesn't get tired because forgetting to breathe makes your voice wear out faster um and um and you're improving your own musicianship um so the 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 breathing thing i think is um mindful breathing is is a not fabulous fact but fabulous practice <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> for parents who are who are musicking and who want to be music men, music um, models for their children, and um, I guess the last thing is um, is keep things playful, to keep things not feeling like a lecture, not feeling like something for an older child or an adult, like we were saying before, but to keep things um, a little silly, a little fun, a little flopping around. Um, just to, to keep it open so that you really hear your child and you're really having fun because that is actually what it's all about. <laughs> yeah, fun. It's, all about. It has to be fun. Yeah, for sure. Akana, yeah. this was really wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Um, everyone, our guest, Akana Abina, her her website is motherintune.com, and again, that's on our website at kidsa to z.com. You can find all that information there. 
So I wanted to thank everyone for listening in. Um, I'm your host, Teresa Signorelli. Again, this is Kids A to Z with Dr. T. As always, if you have questions that you'd like us to address on the show or suggestions for the show, please email us at info at kidsatoz.com. That's info at kidsatoz.com. And that is pretty much it. I hope um, that everybody has a really great day, and thanks again for listening in. All right, bye now. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.